0: He's already been dead, and it's messed with his head. It's John's Post-Life Crisis. Welcome to John's Post-Life Crisis. I am your host, John Johnston, founder, manager of CornNation.com. Your Nebraska Cornhuskers site of massive anticipation as we get ready to play Northwestern. Something else massive going on today. Not going to bring that up right now we are talking with filmmaker what maya washington maya's film through the banks of the red cedar will be showing on big 10 network on november 10th 2020 at 7 p.m central since we're working in god's time the film is about her father gene washington who played wide receiver for the spartans from 1964 to 1966 He was drafted eighth in the 1967 NFL draft by the Minnesota Vikings and went on to play from 67 to 72 for the Vikings, and then his final year in the league in 73 for the Denver Broncos. Is that a fair introduction to Through the Banks of the Red Cedar? Or I really have kind of, I missed the point of the film, and you need to tell us about that.
1: Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, you, you did you did pretty good with the bio. I mean that that's that's impressive. You, you did your homework. Um, but the film's premise really is uh, we go back into history and learn about how my dad was recruited from the segregated South to play for Duffy Doherty in 1963, and so. Uh, At the time, uh, we know our country was very different, Um, maybe not quite as different as as we think it was uh, when we compare it to kind of the issues we're dealing with now, but in in that time, my dad could not attend any of the public universities um, in the South uh, that were only for white people. So a lot of those Southern conferences that dominate uh, the national cycle at the end of uh, of the season every year, those were not in play in the same way because there were no African-American players allowed at those institutions. So my dad had an opportunity to go to Michigan State under Duffy Doherty alongside a handful of other very talented African-American men from the South, as well as different parts of uh, the U.S. to play for Duffy Doherty. They won back-to-back big 10 titles. They were named national champions two years in a row. And as you mentioned, my dad was drafted to the NFL alongside three other African-Americans from Michigan State. So a lot of really important history happened during that time. I was not born, I wasn't alive (laughs) during my dad's um, football career. Um, He also uh, had a pretty stellar track career Um, and all of those things happened before I was born. And so in 2011, when Bubba Smith passed away, I first heard about this unique history of Duffy Doherty and what is referred to now as the underground railroad of college football, uh, that my dad was recruited in a really unique, important social experiment uh, that ultimately led to the demographics that we see on the field today. So the film i kind of go back in his history it's a father-daughter story so uh, we strengthen our bond as i get to know more about him and his history Uh, but that in a nutshell is the very complex (laughs) layered uh trajectory of through the banks of the red cedar
0: so let's start with your father was born near houston texas correct
1: Correct. Yeah, a really small town called LaPorte, Texas, just outside of Houston. Very um, rural, um, uh, gulf-adjacent town right on the water.
0: How how did he get from there to East Lansing, Michigan? And, And my understanding is he got actually recruited on a track scholarship first and then played football also. But describe how that even happened.
1: So in Laporte, at the time, um, as I said, it was completely segregated. So he went to an all-Black high school. He actually had to be bused because he wasn't permitted to go to the high school in his own neighborhood that was just blocks away from his house because he was Black. So uh, he was bused to a school where he met my mom. So his big... Um, you know, cheeky joke is, hey, something came out of segregation <laughs> and that was my mom and him. And I guess I have to agree because, you know, I wouldn't be here if <laughs> if they hadn't uh, met each other as ninth graders who were bust to the same uh, school. But at that time, the uh, black schools could only play inter um, high school athletics with other black schools. So a hundred miles away, um, there was this really amazing big kid whose dad was <laughs> coach at Charlton Pollard High School in Beaumont, Texas, and that big kid was Bubba Smith, um, who uh, people who were around in the 60s and 70s remember him as this powerhouse um, 200, 30 pounds. Um, I'm going to exaggerate and say he was like seven feet tall. He wasn't, but, you know, this giant of a guy um, who was from a football family and his dad was the football coach in Beaumont, Texas, and his name was Willie Ray Smith. And so Willie Ray Smith had been part of Duffy's effort to get to know black coaches in the South in hopes that he could help them develop Players that might be a good fit for Michigan State and refer them. So my dad and Bubba Smith were actually opponents in baseball, basketball, football. And when the time came that Duffy and his scouts were saying, hey, are, you know, are there any other players down here that I should look at? The Smith family kindly said, you know, there's a young man named Eugene Washington um, over there in LaPorte, Texas. I think you should, you know, talk to him. And the Smiths, uh, Bubba and um, Coach Smith said to my dad, we're, we're going to put a good word in for you because Bubba was being heavily recruited. Everybody wanted Bubba. And uh, fortunately for my dad, um, they made good on that, put in a good word and Duffy Doherty uh, recruited him sight unseen. Really. Um, they didn't have the, the, reels and and tape and and things that kind of people start putting together with their five-year-olds now um uh he had to just go on uh Bubba Smith's word and coach Willie Ray Smith's word and and luckily um they made room for my dad on the track team uh for a track scholarship but they had no idea that he would become an NCAA uh champion that he would end up Uh, holding records to this day um, in the Big Ten and the NCAA and do that while he was playing football (laughs) at the same time. So um, I was inspired to make the film really because to hear that story about the Smith family and to learn it in 2011 when Bubba Smith passed away, it was too late. It was, there wasn't an opportunity for me to thank him for the impact that he'd had on my dad's life and ultimately my own life. So I pretty much spent the last forever of my life saying thank you to Bubba Smith um, through this film. And uh, it's been a real beautiful journey.
0: So going from way South in Texas to East Lansing, I mean, that's not just a, you will tell you, I want you to talk about the culture shock, but I live in Minnesota and I know that, you know, and I've lived in Texas, and that this the weather shock by itself is enough to knock you over in your keister, but <laughs> your father had to tell you some stories about the culture shock of moving to East Lansing. Could you share a couple of those?
1: Yeah, well, my dad grew up in a completely segregated environment. So going into the front door of a retail establishment. Um, eating in a restaurant, going to a hotel, let alone having your academic life be in an environment where you have white teachers and white classmates. So this was, I can't even imagine uh, when you say culture shock, um, what, what that would have been like for him to go from one extreme to what must have felt like another extreme, Um, even though, you know, I'm a Midwesterner too. So I grew up in, in, in Minnesota and ended up at USC um, for, for college. But for my dad, I mean, everything was the first, the first time he got on an airplane, (laughs) Um, the first time he arrives in East Lansing and A white coach picks him up and drives him in a car, you know, um, sits in a restaurant with coaches, orders from a menu for the first time. He'd never seen a menu before. Um, All of these things that we take for granted now in 2020 as everyday occurrences to, to just, you know, go about your life and be able to purchase the things that you need to purchase when you uh, do your grocery shopping or to go on vacations or just all of those things that we take for granted today um, were not available to my dad and other uh, black citizens in, in much of America. And when he got to Michigan State, um, he really kind of had to find his sea legs and and uh, navigate the space and learn the new rules, but do it while achieving academically and, you know, killing it um, in track and field and killing it in football. And really as a freshman, uh, trying to make sure they understood they made the right choice of, on him and the others. And so uh, for a lot of the black players, there was only one option and it was winning, being noticed and working, you know, their tails off to make sure they made that varsity squad, that they would become starters and uh, that they would ultimately make the contributions on the field that they did make. But um, everything was new for them and really hard to navigate. Um, Ernie Pasteur talks about the first time it snowed, um and and a lot of the brothers were like I don't I don't know about this you know like this is really hard I'm um, all this you know all this away away from my family it's cold um it's it's completely different culturally um but uh they really band together and would give each other pep talks so if someone was um feeling down or out of sorts, you know that the others would come and be like, "You got this. You can do this. We're we're gonna we're gonna help you." And they really did help each other academically, help each other um, emotionally, uh, as well as obviously in supporting each other on the field. But they have a pretty incredible bond. All all of these uh, men, the ones who have passed away, like Bubba Smith, George Webster, Charlie Thornhill, Maurice Haynes, you know, a number of them. Uh, have, have passed away, but those who are still with us, they continue to this day to have really beautiful, strong bonds with one another. And that extends to their white teammates, as well as the Pacific Islanders who were also uh, recruited out of Hawaii, which was something that Duffy Doherty was doing at the time. So they really did face a lot of adversity adjusting uh, to a new reality, but they had a great support system in one another.
0: Okay, Duffy Doherty is important to Nebraskans listening to this because he was the guy that recommended Bob Devaney as Nebraska's next head football coach. And as Husker fans, we all know where that goes. And we're gonna we're gonna not go into Nebraska football because this isn't about Nebraska football. This is about uh, this great story that Maya is telling us and her film. Duffy Doherty. Let's talk about him for a bit. He is the only coach, and put it in context of the times, he is the only coach that had a recruiting network in the South for black players. He is the only coach that had, I thought I remember correctly, his roster had 20 black players. There were black players on other rosters, but they never were more than four or five at a time. Tell us a bit what you learned about Duffy Dorby, what kind of person he was, and why did he do this? What was his motivation? He just wanted to win. He was a winner, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> Emphatically. Yes. You know, um, I think he saw a window of opportunity that other coaches in the South and even others in the big 10 just really weren't taking advantage of. So uh, the climate though, to sort of explain how and why he was able to do this Um uh, his son, uh, Dan Doherty, who has now passed away but um, it appears in the film, uh, expressed that his dad really believed in what Martin Luther King was was preaching, that uh, the values of their family as a Catholic uh, Irish Catholic family uh, who had had their own experiences of discrimination in America, uh, who just really had, connections to other black people, you know, in his formative years um, when he was coming of age, that that was a true value that Duffy Doherty um, had. Uh, he also had in a university president, John Hanna, who happened to be on the Civil Rights Commission for the United States of America while he was president at Michigan State. So uh, you got a university president who is, um, Up to his ears in understanding the civil rights reality around the country because he was tasked with overseeing a lot of the investigation that was going on that led to major civil rights legislation. A lot of their findings and things that they published um, in 1963 and and later about the state of civil rights in the nation and and the experience of African Americans in the nation uh, really had an impact on on the laws that eventually changed. But to have that be like your boss, you have Biggie Munn who's athletic director, and then you got the president of the university who has these values. And uniquely for Duffy Doherty is he had started the coach of the year clinics. So it was this network um, of coaches all over the country, uh, even professional coaches. Um, When I talked to Bud Grant a few years ago, he, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he shared with me that he had gone to one of Duffy Doherty's clinics. So Bud Grant, my dad's Vikings coach, had actually gone to a Duffy Doherty clinic in, in like, I feel like he said it was like in Fargo, Minnesota, or, or somewhere, you know, up, up north. And um, because Duffy Doherty sort of had this network and relationships with other uh, college coaches, high school coaches, he sort of had um, a foothold on ways to get into places and spaces uh, because of those relationships. So uh, because of those coaching clinics in the South, if there were black football coaches, they couldn't be Uh, taught or be given clinics in the same room as the white coaches. So Duffy Doherty would go out of his way to create these sort of separate experiences that black coaches could participate in. And also went so far as to bring some of them up to Michigan State uh, to spend some time with him and the team and to get pointers on how to condition players and, and how to actually cultivate the kind of talent that he wanted. So it's a kind of a complex answer because I think of course, if, if you aren't someone who wants to be on the right side of history, or you're not someone who believes in racial equality, you're not likely <laughs> to go out of your way, even, even if you think it might give you an edge. If you, fundab- if you fundamentally believe that African Americans are inferior, you're not going to bother <laughs> to recruit um, in the South. So clearly he believed that these players um, deserved an equal opportunity. Uh, he believed that not only were they equal to white players, but in fact, in some ways in the athletic world, they might actually have an edge um, if he were to recruit the best uh, of that talent in the South. So that's kind of my take on it, um, that it was the right thing to do, but it sure didn't hurt that it uh, brought uh, Michigan State quite a get quite a bit of uh, public attention and really... Uh, put them on top for uh, a significant period of time.
0: What, what impact do you think that Duffie Doherty had on sports? And I want to put this in context with the 1970 USC Alabama game in which USC came in and, and beat Alabama. And it's largely credited with, with starting the integration of college sports and Duffy Doherty is kind of off over here, 90, I would say 90% of college football fans don't know who he is. Uh, In fact, I, I read an article or a book once and there was a quote in it that said that the 1970 USC Alabama game did more for the integration of college sports than Martin Luther King, which I thought, what the hell? (laughs) Right. Whatever. You know, the Alabama people, they try to consume everything. They try to take credit for everything. There was even a thing about the fact that Paul Bear Bryant sent players to Duffy Doherty. And all of that is just BS. Hit hit the Alabama people, will you? Okay, maybe (laughs) not. But you know what I mean? Tell me about what do you think the impact was?
1: I mean, you know, and, and what's so funny about it, just so you know that I'm, you know, not biased. Um, I'm a Trojan, okay. <laughs> I, I I went to USC, and so this Sam Bam Cunningham story is my, you know, is my shared history as a, as a Trojan as well. But you're absolutely correct. Um, Bear Bryant and a lot of his homies in the South were late, like very very late to the party. A good Brown versus the Board of Education <laughs> ruling decades late to the party. Um, And so, you know, I was surprised though, um, to be fair, that I didn't hear about these stories or this history until 2011 when Bubba Smith passed away. For my dad and his teammates, and I think even Duffy Doherty, they were just living their lives. So it was one of those things that they were a part of, connected to in some way, shape or form, but I don't think any of them thought 50 years from now, we're going to tell everybody what we did because we're amazing and we're gonna do more for the sport and the African-Americans than Martin Luther King ever did. Like, I don't think that was their mindset or, you know, how, how they were thinking about what they were doing. I think they just took for granted that they were doing something historical, um, and so you're absolutely right. I mean, Duffy Doherty had been, and uh, Michigan State had seen African American players making significant contributions as early as the mid to late late 40s, um, and throughout the 60s, there there were uh, incredible black men who preceded uh, my dad and and his team. Um, their team is just sort of the one that gets a lot of. Uh, shine because they went to a Rose Bowl and and, uh, they were part of that historic 10-10 tie, the infamous 10-10 tie with Notre Dame. Uh, These games were televised, but certainly Alabama and other institutions in the South were just dragging their feet. Um, Integration had been the law of the land federally for a significant amount of time. Southern schools um, put black uh, students, not even just athletes, through hell, just to enroll, um, right. just to enroll in classes. They, they, they were um, taunted, riots broke out. Um, those types of things happen at schools like Ole Miss, you know, um, so it is really exciting to be able to put that sort of Alabama game, USC game, in context, it's still significant. It's still relevant and important and um, okay, you know, <laughs> like like it's a good thing that Alabama eventually integrated. But I think if you're a, a true sports historian or a true sort of buff and, and, and you love to kind of know these facts and this information, it's just an important designation to make, to understand that. Um, a lot of institutions were making great strides, and Alabama was really one of, you know, one of the last to get there. If you think about it, 1970, my dad was playing in the in in the NFL at that time, so that tells you um, our country was still segregated in 1970 <laughs> um, when my dad is playing on an integrated um, Minnesota Vikings team. Another uh, myth that you kind of brought out is that. Um, You know, Bear Bryant is recommending players, um, one that has been debunked in a book called Ray of Light by Tom Shanahan um, that he wrote uh, with Jimmy Ray, who was starting quarterback at at Michigan State, very significant uh, contribution that there was this myth that Charlie Thornhill, who's from Roanoke, Virginia, um, at uh, Michigan State, they called him Mad Dog Charlie, Charlie Thorne. that he was somehow recommended by Bear Bryant in exchange for Joe Namath, that Duffy uh, said, you know, Joe Namath couldn't get into Michigan State academically. So they did some kind of swap or had some kind of conversation. And it's really uh, fascinating if you check out this book, Ray of Light by Tom Shanahan, um, that kind of he did his homework and he found, the reporter in Roanoke who actually recommended Charlie Thornhill to Vince Carroll uh, at Michigan State, Bear Bryant, yes, crossed paths with Charlie Thornhill, but was just a speaker at an award ceremony where Charlie Thornhill got an award. He had already committed to Michigan State by that time. So um, it is really exciting to finally give some credit where credit is due. Uh, but also to kind of put these fun stories that we have um, about people's heroes from the south um, just in their proper context. It doesn't take anything away from uh, Sam Bam Cunningham or or that game or the fact that Alabama got it together (laughs) and they're in a very different place now um, uh, in terms of uh, Black player numbers. Um, But I'm just really excited that people are hearing these stories for the first time. And, and I hope it doesn't take another 50 years for people to become better versed in the reality of the desegregation in college football.
0: Should, should we talk for a bit about the 1966 team or should we veer off into you making a film?
1: I'm, I'm just, you know, excited to be here. So I'm happy to talk about <laughs> whichever of those uh, things that you'd like to talk about.
0: Okay, the 1966 Michigan State Spartan team is the team that's famous for playing Notre Dame to a 10-10 tie. And Ere Parsegian was a coach at Notre Dame and was forever held in poor light because he played for a tie. Notre Dame ended up the national championship or the national championship, national champions by the AP and coaches poll. Michigan State, with a record of 9-0-1, that one tie ended up number two. And then, of course, Alabama claims that as one of their national titles because that's what they do. We'll stay away from them. That 1966 team had Bubba Smith, Clint Jones, Gene Washington, your father, and George Webster on it, correct? Correct. Yeah, those four players went – Uh, in the top eight players in the NFL draft that's never been accomplished since. Uh, Tell us anything you can fill in there that I didn't just spew.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that 66 season um, was profoundly important because it was my dad's senior year. Um, In uh, January of 1966, they lost to UCLA by two points in the Rose Bowl after also having a great um, undefeated, you know, season, just really uh, had also kind of beat up on UCLA or at least um, showed up (laughs) earlier that season. So when they went to the Rose Bowl and lost by like two yards, you know, like just yards short of the goal line, um, they were on a mission. So going into that 66 season, Uh, They knew they had everything to prove. They knew that they needed to defend their um, being named national champions the year prior. Um, And so they were hardcore serious that this is it. This is is our final season um, as Spartan football players for my dad and others who were seniors that year. And you got um, in that game of the century, that 10-10 tie, um, against Notre Dame, you have this being televised and um, the numbers that that game put up sort of rivaled uh, maybe the Super Bowl at that time that, that there were people all over the country watching this. It also uh, was broadcast in uh, naval bases and in different military bases around the country. It was seen in places like Hawaii. Um, and so these are some big, big stakes, big, big shoes. No, that we were-
0: take for granted now.
1: Yeah, and yeah. so um, my grandfather was able to come up for the game, which was a big deal. Um, community members in Laporte, Texas, pulled their money together so that he could come and see my dad play college football for the first time, um, and you have a, a starting quarterback in Jimmy Ray who, who is out there on the field. You have all of these black starters on the field. And so for people around the country, you, you, you just hadn't seen anything like this. And that game was televised in color. So you see, if you, if you ever Google that game, cause there's, you know, clips and stuff like that um, online that you can find, you see their, their Brown skin is poking through, <laughs> you know, like you, can see that on, on actual television. So, to have um, those numbers on Michigan State's team and Notre Dame, of course, had Alan Page, who uh, eventually uh, was at the Vikings with my dad, who's a really beautiful and amazing human being and a good um, longtime family friend. But he's one black player um, on the Notre Dame team. And then you've got Michigan State with uh, so many black players, you've got a black quarterback. And they were hardcore serious, and so um, that game really defined their senior year, and uh, to this day lives in history because um, one of my dad's um, teammates, Pat Gall- Gallinaw, always jokes like, "You know, who was the 1970 champion, national champion? Um, who was the 19, you know, 85 national?" Most people, unless you're like very, very serious and sincere like you. So you, you might be one of those people who can answer all of those questions. But when people are asked who were national champions in 1966, um, people will remember, oh, it was Michigan State and Notre Dame because of that game. So um, they went out on a tie. So it wasn't a loss. And um, Alan Page just said, you know, they were tired, they were beat up, but they were disappointed. They didn't win, but they were Glad they didn't lose and uh, the Spartans felt the same way, but it was definitely uh, the way the Spartans tell it very frustrating because they felt at the sort of final minutes of the game that Parsidian chose to run out the clock and not really sort of duke it out to the end. So the players were frustrated. Um, Duffy uh, has said some colorful things <laughs> about it that I won't requote because it it's one of those things that's like, doesn't hold up to 2020, <laughs> but it was okay, I guess for him to say um, at that time, um, his remarks and sort of how it felt to have a tie, you know, to not uh, get, get the win. But um, I think that was just a really powerful and important turning point for the program at Michigan State Obviously it it launched my dad and George Webster and Clinton Jones and Bubba Smith into their next phase of life um, as professional football players and uh, really served as the space that um, really changed everything for my dad and, and sort of put him on a, on a really great path for life.
0: So let's go back to the film. This took you a decade to make. Why so long?
1: Well, people weren't um, as enthusiastic about talking about race and sports in 2012 um, as they are now. And and I don't know how enthusiastic people are now, um, but our country has really changed and people's willingness to face reality, to face um, the truths of, of our history and, um, you know, things things are shifting now. But at the time, so Bubba Smith passed away in 2011. Um, I started the process of researching and really taking it seriously and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop a film around this. So 2012, I, I got my first grant. Um, 2013, um, we kind of officially went into production and I sort of launched a major crowdfunding campaign. Uh, at that time, I had approached sports networks I had approached um, the university. Uh, I had approached the Vikings organization and anyone who would listen to me and applied for I don't know how many filmmaker grants. And it was a a slow, slow, slow process of of getting the resources together to tell this story, uh, to get the moral support, which thank goodness I, I did sort of gleam from Michigan State University, from the Vikings organization. Um, But ultimately it took that long because I am a small brown woman who dared to make a football movie. And frankly, this is my take on it. Um, I, you know, I can't speak for the people I encountered in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, who are in a position to make a phone call or to do something, but didn't. Um, But what did happen is we connected with thousands of people all over the United States and not just Spartans, um, people uh, from sort of every walk of life, if you will, every team uh, represented, uh, but people who said this story needs to be told, this is important, or people who lived through it and remembered it and who were frustrated with the uh, conversations that were happening in America in 2016, um, 2017, about um, racial justice, inclusion, the state of, of education, uh, and making sure that uh, diversity is still a, a value in the US. So this film took forever because no one got on board when they could have, but uh, human beings who are on the right side of history who said, you know what, I don't know, I, I love Gene Washington, I loved, um, The Vikings, I love Michigan State. I really think this is an important story. I believe in that little brown girl telling the football movie. So I'm gonna go and send my $5, my $10. Some people sent $5,000. And I worked my tail off. And a lot of people who contributed to this film as uh, fellow filmmakers, right? Down to editors, um, people who did color correction, um, the music composition, um, so many people said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in here. This is important. I'm going to help with this. And so for us to finally get to a major sports network like the Big Ten Network this fall, um, we're going to be on November 10th, um, people are finally able to see this film. So it came out in 2018 at the Detroit Free Press Film Festival. And after that we toured a variety of film festivals had been at colleges and universities uh, throughout the country. So imagine Iowa State welcomed us with open arms, Arizona State University, um, USC, um, a number of institutions outside of the big 10 were like, come here, come share this film with us. We wanna see this film, we wanna talk about these issues, we wanna build uh, panels and discussions around these issues. So it was very clear to me that while the entertainment platforms weren't quite on board or weren't maybe ready for a story like this, or they saw it as too much of a risk or a gamble or had other priorities, um, our grassroots community is why this film has uh, been as successful as it has been. And, and ultimately I believe part of the reason it's, it's gonna be on Big Ten Network next week. Uh, it's the people have spoken. And if you would have told me in 2011 that I'm going to spend nearly nine years of my life getting this film to a television platform, I never would have believed you. I, 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 <laughs> I don't even know what I would have done or thought, which is good because I didn't know it was going to take this long. I really uh, naively thought that other people agreed with me that this was a film that needed to be seen um, and that making it would be a worthwhile endeavor. But I'm so glad that it took the route that it took because I have been very impressed, um, very humbled by the outpouring of support that I've received over the years from people who really care, who really care about justice, who really care about, celebrating history and not being afraid of it and learning from it. So uh, yeah, it would have been nice if it had been a normal kind of three or four year journey. And and that would have been long enough, but nine years. And um, Bubba Smith, I, I feel his spirit. I feel his support that he gave to my family so long ago by recommending my dad for uh, that opportunity at Michigan state. And I still feel him supporting this process, this project. And I'm so grateful that finally (laughs) more people will be able to see and experience this film.
0: I I remember a comment by Whoopi Goldberg of all people. Uh, When she became, finally became famous people, she said congratulated her on finally making it. And her comment was, I'd have gotten here sooner if you'd have taken your foot off my head. So, you know, you're a persevering person. Uh, I would say that you got that from your father. But let's talk about your father. How, what was it like making a film with your father?
1: So that that was... Um... I think among the very many father-daughter lessons in ways that we grew closer, because again, I didn't expect that I would be funding this whole thing myself. <laughs> I mean, to, to have this project completely funded out of my own pocket uh, from crowdfunding individual donors, like I said, who gave everything from $5 to $5,000, foundation grants, um, state grants, um, It was really, really difficult. And when I first approached my dad and said, Hey, I'm going to make this film, um, he was sort of like, Okay, (laughs) why? You know, because he really sees his contribution at Michigan State and the Vikings as a team effort that um, any accolade he's ever received. uh, is the direct result of the cohesion of teammates. As a wide receiver, if you don't have a quarterback who gets the ball to you, if you don't have um, a defensive line that can <laughs> help you get get to the um, end zone, you, 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 it's not it's not a a sport where it's about being a superstar or or sort of taking taking all of those accolades for yourself. So he was quite skittish at first that I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, I really, um, you know, it's a team sport. And so he was open to hearing my perspective as someone who would never heard this history and felt that while, yes, you're amazing dad and you did some uh, amazing things as an athlete, it's really um, these issues in your team that are super important. And so he was on board, but I know as a father, it was hard to see me struggle like I did, you know, and um, to see me, you know, to be worried about me, be like, Maya, you need need to, are you getting enough sleep? Are you, (laughs) what are you doing? You know, Um, but I think as an artist, uh, because I'm also an actor, um, I grew up dancing, um, had a career as a musical theater actor um, and, you know, he's always been supportive, but it's a complete other world for him in the way that football is a complete other world for him. So to take on a project that requires us to find a way to actually work together um, for, for him to sort of not be forced, because that's not, you know, it's not like I you know, like forced him, um, but for him to have to sit down with me literally with a camera in his face and tell me about his life. Um, And then uh, for me to learn about him in that manner, and then for him to sort of watch me duke it out and, and experience challenges as a woman, you know, in this process, in a field that is, is dominated um, by men. uh, And try to tell a story that people, frankly, were very, um, ignorant about. They just didn't even know the history. And if they did know the history, um, they didn't have the imagination or creativity or innovation to understand how it was important today. Um, early feedback that I had gotten about the film through an intermediary. So I can't say that this came directly from us the sports network, cause I wasn't in the room, but the feedback that I got from the person who had brought the project to the attention of a sports network was that, yeah, yeah, you know, Duffy Doherty, um, you know, he didn't really get his due, you know, but um, yeah, we just don't think people would be interested in something that happened 50 years ago.
0: <laughs> wow. That's kind of, dismissive I guess is the word isn't it
1: yep <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of what I was up against so making a film with my dad and sort of encountering some of the challenges right some of that attitude or point of view that felt dismissive um while we're cultivating the parts are excavating the parts of his life where he was dismissed, where his talent was overlooked, um, where he and other black athletes like him were undervalued and um, under under resourced. Um, There are many African-American men who grew up alongside my dad in all kinds of parts of the South who were as talented. And there might've even been some who were more talented who just didn't have an opportunity. And, we're, and we see that now, right? Because the sport is integrated. So we see all this amazing powerhouse football talent coming out of Texas. Texas is, you know, football heaven <laughs> for, for fans in terms of cultivating uh, talent from a very young age. Like the, there are a few other states like Texas that kind of put up the the numbers eventually of, of people who go into the NFL. So, uh, you know, It wasn't fun (laughs) sometimes, it was hard, Um, but it makes the victory that much sweeter. Um, And being able to connect with other people through this process um, has allowed my dad and I to have so many rich experiences. Um, Before the pandemic, we were on airplanes traveling to all these different cities across America to go and spend time with um, people and share this film and talk about these issues and have panel discussions with scholars in sports and race, uh, current student athletes. We have really been able to engage in a a way that we wouldn't have had this just been something that was picked up, put out (laughs) um, in in 2015 or or something like that. And, And yeah, that would have been nice. Oh, maybe some people would have caught it but the opportunity to really connect with true fans, true um, historians, people who really, really care about the game for the past two years since, since the film came out has been such a gift to my dad and I because we're spending so much more time together than we would have um, at this kind of chapter or stage of our lives to, to be with my dad on an airplane, check into hotels,
0: Can I ask you about current events?
1: Sure. I just don't want to talk about the election.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe he'll cut this out. I don't know if he will, but we're not talking about that thing going on. What I want to ask you about is stuff like, have you paid attention to name, image, and likeness? That subject.
1: Name, image, and likeness.
0: The ability for college athletes to make money off of themselves. I mean, there's a – there's a, and, well, it's not even an undercurrent. It's a very prominent attitude that, you know, players are exploited and they, they're free labor, and it's been this way for a long time. And many of today's athletes, particularly black athletes, are very popular, uh, don't get to make any money off themselves in college sports. Do you want to comment on that, or should we just go on to –
1: yeah, no, okay. I'm, I'm happy to comment on that. I think uh, if you look at the history of Michigan State and how Michigan State got into the Big Ten, uh, scholarships was a big point of contention because John Hanna as president of Michigan State uh, had used an endowment from the Jenison uh, family to create an award for college student athletes so that they could provide you know basic <laughs> things for students who uh, at that time, and again, you know, he, he comes around in the 40s, but had worked for the university before then. So it's like, the United States wasn't that far away from the Great Depression. <laughs> there were two world wars, you know, the climate at the time in, in the 40s, uh, it was very innovative and very creative on Jan, John Hanna's part to say, you know, we should offer something to help these these students because a lot of them come from humble backgrounds, farm communities or um, other places in, in Michigan and, and they kind of need some support. And you also understood that developing an athletic program would sort of help elevate the profile of Michigan State University, uh, and, it, and he was very successful in that because it was a land grant institution, an agricultural school, and now when we think of Michigan State, there are people working on coronavirus-related <laughs> um, uh, innovation and things like that today. So that was sort of at the core belief system uh, at Michigan State for the 11 years that it or excuse me, 11 times it took them to get into the Big Ten conference. Um, and the other schools at the time were like, no, we, we don't want you to be giving scholarships. <laughs> we don't want anyone to give scholarships because they were very worried about um, other schools having a leg up. And the idea of pay for play was sort of being discussed at the time because as they saw it, um, all of this sport is supposed to be amateur. It's just supposed to be for fun and your focus should be on being a student. And, and that was sort of the mindset throughout the 40s and 50s uh, of the Big Ten Conference. And not that that has changed. Of course, the conference um, cares about student-athletes and, and the word student comes before the word athlete. And And there is a lot of effort put into academics. But no one could have foreseen the amount of money that has been pouring into universities over the past 20 to 30 years in support of football programs uh, to sort of make, at least on the surface, college football look like a mini NFL. Um, and it's it, it we'd be um, untruthful to say that. <laughs> you know, that this isn't a stepping stone, that, that you know, those peewee league um, kids who are five, six, seven years old and, and wearing pads and, and their parents are out there <laughs> getting them into clinics and doing those things um, with a goal in mind of getting them into a major um, football school, um, hoping that they pick the right school that's gonna develop them and give them the, the, the visibility give them what they're going to need to catch the eye of um, NFL scouts and be prepared for the NFL. Like um, if we pretend that that's not real, <laughs> um, we're not really uh, dealing in, in reality that um, football and football for college students has has changed dramatically. And so what I saw the uh, MSU football players who I got um, a chance to get to know through the process of making the film. Um, There are uh, a handful of guys who were on that 2014 uh, Rose Bowl team at Michigan State, um, like Benny Fowler and Kaj Reynolds and Darquez Denard, Max Bulla, Uh, you know, these guys, I'm I'm making a film while they're literally living out their senior year and and getting prepared uh, for the league. Um, and I saw how hard they're working. So like you see a scene in our film where we're at Lucas oil, um, stadium for the big 10 championship and the Spartans win and they had like finals on Monday and Tuesday after they play that game. Um, and so the reality for student athletes today, and when you talk about, um, name, likeness, image, those types of things, they have full on photo shoots. Um, They appear on um, promotional materials. Um, These networks uh, have whole sort of packages before the game starts, or at least that's what we were doing before the pandemic where they're sort of posing (laughs) and doing these these things that are helping promote the game itself, um, helping extend viewership. And because of that framework that has existed since the beginning at least of the Big Ten Conference and many of these college conferences of of that sort of issue of how much support can you or can't you give a student athlete to where it is no longer amateur sport and and sort of ventures often into professional uh, place, I think is sort of murky and um, clearly, especially with the pandemic right now, has has really raised that issue and that concern of what faith these young men and for um, you know women student athletes in, in other sports are are sort of putting their hands in in the care of their university and in the care of their conferences to keep them safe um, to protect them from any kind of long-term injury or um, health effect as a result of their participation. So, you know, again, I'm an artist. I am not, you know, an athlete. Um, But I I just know there is something that isn't quite right. Um, And there is, there has to be some way to compensate people or adequately support them um, so that they're not going hungry. Um, when the cafeteria closes. Um, so that, for example, um, to make this film, I had to pay money to um, the NFL, to the big time conference, to the um, the rights holders for the Rose Bowl, to license the footage that you see in the film of gameplay that my dad is in, um, that his teammates are in, that some of them who are deceased are in. Um, and I don't believe any of those people received any of <laughs> the royalties from the fee that I had to pay. Um, granted, there are people who um, support these infrastructures, right? You have actual human beings working there, logging tapes, looking for footage, and, and it's an actual... Um, uh, infrastructure, right, that needs to be supported financially. So some of those license fees go to the salaries of the people who prepare the footage for you, um, who research and, and things like that. So I'm not naive to say it should all just be free. But if I'm having to license footage of my own father, and I know he doesn't even see a dime of what I paid to license material that he's in. There's an, there's a problem there. That's, there's something not right about that, especially when football is a sport um, that does have physical consequences that has wear and tear on a student athlete's body. And by participating in the sport, no matter how, um, Prepared, the institution you go to is to deal with conditioning and deal with um, supporting you with trainers and 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 medical professionals who are advising you. You're still putting yourself at risk. Um, it is a high risk sport, especially for head injuries. Um, and I I think we it would be great to figure out a way for athletes to be uh, properly compensated or given more support so that uh, not only while they're student athletes, but when they graduate, um, just have some more resources. And I think um, I know Michigan State and and other institutions, um, I've had a chance to tour a lot of athletic facilities of the schools that we visit, which is pretty cool. So I get to see the um, weight rooms and and conditioning rooms of, of various universities. And so obviously the college uh, athletic community nationally, it takes these issues very seriously and they're, and they're doing their, what's in their power and in their budgets to um, take care of the health of student athletes. But um, it, would be, it, it would be nice, I think. And I, I'm sure there's some student athletes who, who would agree that they're putting in 60, 70 hour weeks as students and athletes.
0: Uh, for context for people, One of our guys on my website went to the NFL and asked what it would cost for like, I think five seconds of Scott Frost in an NFL game. And it was something like $5,000. It was some astronomical sum for like uh, just a few seconds of footage. So the costs are horrifying. How can people support you? And I know we can support you by watching this on Big Ten Network, but this is your chance to tell us how else we can support you. And we will certainly, you know, in the show notes and the article emphasize, yes, you should watch this. If nothing else, so that you next time you talk to an Alabama fan, you can give them the business. But how else can they support you, Maya?
1: Well, we have a website. Um, you can go to redcedermovie.com Um, You could also just Google through the banks of the red cedar. Um, We are always fundraising. So we we will always um, be raising money for some effort or outcome in how we uh, bring the film into the community. Um, We are working on creative ways to bring the film to educational institutions. Since the pandemic, obviously we had to put a pause on physically going into communities and screening the film and doing a lot of the work that we really loved and that people were really excited about. So we are kind of putting our creativity, innovation and our financial resources toward thinking about sort of how can we continue that level of engagement. So beyond our broadcast, which we're very excited about November 10th on the Big Ten Network. So tune in, because that's important. Um, we, we really wanna have um, strong viewership because that demonstrates that, hey, people right. really care about this film. This is really awesome. People care about these issues. Um, the Big Ten Network will air it maybe Uh, two other times um, after November 10th, but I don't know uh, what those dates will be. But in the meantime, you can join our mailing list again at redcedarmovie.com, or you can Google through the banks of the red cedar, um, or my name or my dad's name and the word film, and you will probably be directed to our website. You can join our mailing list. If you'd like to make a donation or send us a message about an idea that you have for how we might be able to bring the film to your community. Um, Those are things that we're open to and interested in. Um, What we have coming uh, down the line is some curriculum uh, and other resources to engage people further so that this isn't just, again, a film, but really what we've created is an educational community around this film, a place and space where you can have intergenerational conversations about race and sports, which um, for many people is is still uh, awkward. right? But what I'm finding is it it doesn't have to be awkward. It it can be actually a a really powerful thing to have um, someone who is in their 70s or 80s talk to someone who's in their 20s or 30s and just talk about what was the world like when you were 18. Yeah.
0: I, I, you know, when you started talking at the beginning of this, I honestly I completely forgotten about the fact that uh, you know black kids were segregated when your father was young, and that he couldn't even attend a university in his home state or in any of the states around it. And that's, you know, I guess that's something we just kind of look at it and go, what What planet was that? Who were those aliens that thought that way and did things that way? So, hey. Is there anything else that you want to add to this that I haven't asked you?
1: No, I, I'm just so grateful that you are sharing this time with me and and letting your viewers know about um, our film. And one of my dad's, like, best friends is a Nebraska fan, so.
0: <laughs> Every, everybody should have a best friend who is a Nebraska fan.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, win points with him for sure. So I, I look forward to um Sharing, sharing the link with his friend, Edgar.
0: Well, we'll try to get it up on the Michigan state site too. So we'll, you know what, we'll, we'll try to spread it around. Awesome. I'll just arm some people I'm guessing the Alabama guys won't, you know, Yeah. Well, know I, them too.
1: I mean, they need to know their history um, as well. So um, maybe someone from Alabama will watch our film and say, wow, I'm going to make a film about Bear Bryant and really get in there and, and, and maybe tell, um, Uh, some of the untold stories there. So I I welcome everybody because we, there are so many stories in the U S that have not been told and we need to tell them and we need to take the time to really learn um, about history.
0: All right. Well, I think we're going to end there and that's it. This has been John's post-life crisis. Thanks for listening Go Big Red, and thank you for Maya for joining us and sharing her story. Uh, You know, I always end these like driving off a cliff. That's one thing I need to get better at. But yeah, I will say earlier, you said something about your your dad telling you stories. If my children sat down with a camera in front of me, I would never give one straight answer ever. (laughs) I would lie to them, and they know this. And I guess that you were able to get, maybe your dad's not like that. I don't know. I was supposed to end
1: (laughs) it it helped that I was able to tell him how much the camera and the people and the other the crew and 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 the lighting how much it all cost and suddenly someone will start finding words to share
0: (laughs) you won't be such a liar (laughs) what's that he, he wouldn't be such of a liar like I would.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know if the lights were so bright. I don't know if he even had time to think about lying or, or, or not telling the full truth.
0: <laughs> okay, we're actually going to end there. We're, this is the end. This okay. is the real end. Thank you for listening. Go Big Red.